0: wonderful singing this morning and wonderful truths that we were able to sing about. If you would this morning, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We hit the pause button last week because Brother Kick was here and it was great to hear about his work and hear a message from the Word and But just by way of remembrance, um, Colossians is one of the prison epistles written by the Apostle Paul in response to his friend Epaphras who was concerned about the apostasy in the city of Colossae. It hadn't made its way into the church yet, but he was afraid that it might, and we can tell by the things that Paul dealt with, uh, he was dealing mostly with mysticism and legalism. Both are things that add to salvation they might make people feel spiritual but it's the exact opposite and in the first half the first two chapters he really deals uh, again uh, I feel like I almost give the same introduction on Wednesday nights with Ephesians because it's very similar he's encouraging both of these churches in these different epistles to stand for the truth in a wicked day and the way that he does that he reminds them of who they are in Jesus Christ He reminds them of the gospel. He reminds them of who Jesus Christ is and who we are in Jesus Christ. He doesn't just begin with don't do this and do that. Uh, That might be the result of our foundation, but it can't be our foundation in and of itself. And so after he gives this great uh, doctrine on the person and gospel of Christ, he gets into chapter 3, and this great pivotal sentence, this transitional verse He says in chapter 3 and verse 1, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. In other words, you know Jesus Christ, love Jesus Christ, prove it. Because our belief determines our behavior. And our doctrine ought to determine our duty and the way that we live our life. And so we spent the last several weeks dealing with uh, the resurrected life. And, and, you know, it's kind of an ironic thing to say that we live the resurrected life by living the crucified life. It sounds like a misnomer, doesn't it? An oxymoron of sorts. And, um, and so we do. We, we live the resurrected life by living the crucified life. We live by dying to self and dying to Christ. And if we're going to live that resurrected life, By the grace of God, there's going to be some things that we have to put to death. We've seen so far in this text in chapter 3 that uh, we're to mortify sexual sin. We're to overcome our thought life. Uh, We're to put off uh, anger and wrath and malice, which are really sins of the heart that have to do uh, with our relationships. And we've seen all these things. But then today, Paul has another list, another few things he wants to talk about. And this is the sin in our speech. And so I'm going to be dealing with our words today. And so with that in mind, let's read our text. And I'll begin in the beginning of the chapter to give us the overlay and context, but I'm really going to be dealing with uh, verses 8 through 11. But chapter 3 and verse 1, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth, for you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall you also appear with Him in glory. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. And remember, he's talking to believers here. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience, in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. And here's our thrust this morning. But now ye also put off all these, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man which is renewed in knowledge after the image of Him that created Him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the beautiful day You've given us, God. Lord, we rejoice in it and are glad in it. Lord, we're thankful that Your mercies are new every morning. Lord, I'm so thankful for this church body that you put together. I'm thankful for the unity that we have, even though everybody uh, has their differences. Lord, everybody is dealing with their own set of circumstances. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would just uh, bless the people this morning, encourage your people. Lord, enter me as sin self, and I pray that you would just hide me behind the shadow of the cross. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. and Lord, I just pray that uh, preaching would be powerful and clear this morning. It's in Christ's name I pray these things. Amen. Now, as I said, we're going to be dealing with the sin in our speech this morning. And, uh, you know, honestly, uh, I I always feel the weight of preaching the Word of God. I really take this seriously. It's not a joke to me. You know, I I never just get completely comfortable with it. And I feel like if I do, then something's wrong in my heart. But it's messages like this and texts like this. I mean, I really, really feel the weight of this message this morning. And it's not because the the message or the text is bad. It's because I'm so very aware of my failure to live up to the message. And I feel like... That if there's one thing that the church is really lacking on as a whole in America, and I'm certainly sure that it's true of many of us, and I know it's true of myself, and that is that we're way too flippant with our words. We don't don't recognize the weight and the power of our words. I mean, I really, my stomach has been a nonsense. I have been grieved by this because it's so real. And Proverbs 18 and verse 21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Have you ever stopped to think about just how powerful your words are? Probably more so than we even realize. Our words are powerful. It says the power of death and life are in the tongue. Your words have the power to build up And your words have the power to tear down. And it's no wonder that Paul said in Ephesians 4 and verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that means to build up, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. Isn't that a thought? That your words can be the means of God's grace in the life of another person. That's certainly true of the gospel, isn't it? God could have chosen any method He wanted to save a lost and world, but He chose the preaching of the gospel, which is communicated through words. Uh, But that can also be true of our encouragement. It can be true of our instruction. It can be true of teaching the Word of God. Our words have the power to minister grace unto the hearers, or it has the power to criticize and to tear down. Have you ever really thought about the power of certain types of statements? Certain types of words or speeches? I mean, think about the power of a real, genuine, broken, repentant apology. I've seen apologies heal relationships. I've seen apologies heal people. I've seen apologies Take families that were separated and messed up and brought them back together in unity and heal that thing. And it all started with an apology. Words with a meaning behind it. You ever thought about the the power of criticism? You know, the number one killer of teenagers in our society is suicide. Did you know that? The number one killer of teenagers is suicide. Self-inflicted death. And I believe that some of the biggest reasons, I mean, we could, we could give a broad swath of reasons, but I certainly believe that right there at the top of that list would have to be the criticism among our young people. It, I mean, it's, it's far beyond. I mean, listen, it's always been there to some degree. I dealt with it even when I was in middle school, high school, and I get all that. It, it's a different level than it has ever been. And I, I think a lot of it has to do with social media. You know, social media has really dehumanized us. You realize that? I mean, there's, there's people that would say something to a person or about a person in that sphere that they would never say to that person's face. And if we're not careful, we can get caught up. It's just too easy to do, and yet words have so much weight. I know young people. I could call their names. I've been to their funerals that committed suicide as a teenager. And they went back and looked at their journal readings and they mentioned about how much they had been verbally uh, abused and bullied. And you say, well, that's ridiculous. Well, uh, that, that might be your opinion, but it certainly wasn't theirs. And so our words are powerful. You, you think about people like Adolf Hitler. I, I don't speak a word of German. And you can go back and listen to his speeches and the passion and the power and the influence that it had that he convinced an entire nation to try to take over the world and convince them that the Jew was a drag on society and the the horrible things that ensued that started with one man and and his words. You know, when Hitler first started speaking his propaganda, uh, the little... The uh, Nazi Socialist Party in Germany was just nothing. It was just a, a weakling. It was not even hardly recognized. They met in a bar. That's where their meetings were. He began speaking at a bar, and it got bigger and bigger and bigger, and it eventually had a voice in Germany, and we know the fallout from that. Uh, we think about men like uh, Martin Luther King, and I'm certainly not endorsing him as a person or a preacher. That man was such a heretic, I really don't think he's in heaven. His marital fidelities are well documented, but... Man, he, the words he used. I mean, the, the, I have, who can forget, I have a dream. And the power behind that and the influence that brought about some positive change in this country. Uh, words, not violence, not war, words. Words have so much power. And so we need to be careful with how we use it. Our, and this is something too we have to get, this is so important. And I'll get the scuba gear out and go deep for a minute. Uh, But did you know our words are spiritual in nature? Even if we're not having a spiritual conversation, our words are spiritual in nature because they communicate a message from our heart and soul. And by the way, did you know that our ability to communicate words is one of the greatest evidences and proofs that there is a God? Um... The ancient philosopher Aristotle brought this out. And of course, Aristotle, he was not a Christian by any stretch of the imagination. But he recognized that there had to be, he wouldn't have called it God, but he would have called it the unmoved mover or the uncaused caused. Or, uh, most intriguing to me was his thoughts about uh, the intelligent informer or the transcendent informant. Um, and, And Aristotle used to talk about what he called the difference between shape and form. And when he would argue and debate a materialist, and all a materialist is is basically like an atheist or an agnostic or a humanist. A materialist believes that there's nothing spiritual in the universe. There's no... Uh, there's no God, there's no spiritual forces, everything is material. That that all we are is matter in motion, everything is material. But an immaterialist, like I would be considered an immaterialist, I mean obviously I have more specific definition than that, but obviously there is spiritual, there is a God, there is a, a transcendent God out there. Well, Aristotle was an immaterialist, and he argued the difference between shape and form. And one of the examples he gave, it's like this morning, I've got my notes here. Now, a materialist would look at this and say, well, this is paper, this is ink, it's all material. But a materialist cannot account for the message in the words. There is an immaterial message in these words. It's more than just ink. And in other words, there has to be a transcendent informer for these words to have any kind of meaning. What an, what an incredible thought. You know, God invented language. Adam didn't invent language. God did. A- Adam didn't develop certain sounds and syllables and one day accumulate it into a language so he could communicate with God. No, God made him to be able to communicate in that way. And at the Tower of Babylon, Genesis 11, everybody had a unified language. And he confounded their language so that there was a language barrier there. They couldn't understand one another, so these different groups of people that spoke the same language, they branched out across the world in their own settlements, and we see the effects of that even today. Um, There's been times where God broke down that language barrier. I think about uh, the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2. You remember when they spoke other tongues, the apostles did at the day of Pentecost? They weren't speaking in some type of uh, angelic gibberish. There's no such thing in the Bible. They... They spoke human languages that they didn't know. That's why all those different people from those foreign nations who were there for Pentecost, they said, how do we hear them in our own language? are not all these that speak Galileans. How in the world do we understand them? And so even our words, the mere fact we can communicate with words, uh, speaks to the existence of God because He's the one that gives our language meaning. It, it's, a, it's a message from our heart and soul to other people. So our words have so much significance and so much power. And we have to get this too. I I got a lot of introduction this morning before I get into the message. But um, sin in our speech reveals sin in our heart. Matthew 15 uh, verses 18 through 20, uh, Jesus said, Those things which proceed out of the mouth, come from the heart and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. Our speech is the aroma of our heart. Our speech is the aroma of our heart. If our speech is full of lies, then our heart is full of deceit. If our speech is full of bragging and self-promotion, then our heart is full of pride. If our speech is full of praise for sinful things, then our heart is full of idolatry. If our speech is perverse, then our heart is full of perversion. If our speech is full of cursing, then our heart is full of blasphemy against God. If our mouth is full of complaining, our heart is full of greed and unthankfulness. But on the other hand, if your heart is full of joy and thankfulness, then your mouth will be full of the praise of God. If your heart is full of the truth of God's Word, your speech will be filled with the truth of God's Word. If, you, if your love and concern is for your neighbor, then your speech will be full of the gospel to them. This is why Jesus said, For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. In other words... The things that you say from your mouth, the things that come out of your mouth, that is an overflow of whatever is in your heart. Your mouth will tell on your heart. What a a sobering thought. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. But this is why Paul encourages and admonishes, uh, admonishes these Colossian believers that if they're going to live the resurrected life in Christ, they're going to have to, by the grace of God, get control of their speech. Uh, This is so important in the book of James. All of chapter 3 is devoted to the power of the tongue. How it's just a little member, but it creates such a fire. It kindles such a fire. It's such a powerful thing that we need to learn to master by the grace of God. But understand, That by asking God to help you with your speech, you're also asking God to help you with whatever is in your heart that shouldn't be there. Sinful speech is merely a symptom of a greater problem within our heart. So, what are some sins in our speech that Paul addresses in this text in Colossians 3 that we need to be aware of and repent if needed? He lists three things specifically, and of course, this is not everything we could say wrong but it's three that he wanted to deal with here. The first one that we need to be aware of is blasphemy. Look at verse 8. But now you also put off all these, all these anger, wrath, malice, and then he says blasphemy. Now blasphemy, it really means slander. That would be our more modern term of slander. It means to slander someone's good name... When you run someone down and slander them, this is what the Bible calls blasphemy. Now, when we hear blasphemy, I know that most people equate blasphemy as a sin against God, and certainly it is. It's sinful to blaspheme and slander the name of God, but it's also possible to blaspheme other people as well. Um, A great example of this is talking about blasphemy against God, and we can certainly learn what blasphemy is even with other people in this text. But if you remember, uh, Jesus said that the unforgivable sin, the one sin that would not be forgiven men, is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31. And if you remember in the context, Jesus was healing people. He was performing all these miracles. And the Pharisees couldn't deny the miracles, so they wanted to attack the man. And they said, well you know, we can't really deny the miracles, but He's doing this by the power of Satan. He's casting out Satan by the power of Satan. What sense that makes, I don't know, and I don't think they did either, but they had to try something. Now, I do want to say this. I I don't believe it's possible for us to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Ghost in the same way that it's brought in this context. You know, this is the only time that that phrase is used. We don't see it in any of the Pauline epistles. We don't see it in any of the writings of the apostles there in the New Testament, there's, there's no warning as Christians not to do that, which usually, most of the time, if you find something in Scripture one time, it's usually limited to that particular context. And in that particular context, these people were watching Jesus perform miracles live and in color. Uh, we can't do that today. Jesus is not walking the earth. We can't literally see Him doing these things and therefore it's not something we could even talk about. It's not something uh, we could blaspheme. Now I've heard, I've heard charismatic preachers and I've heard people try to use that as a club to beat people over the head with and say, now listen, if you go to questioning, speaking in tongues, if you go to bad-mouthing people, falling out and being slain in the Spirit, if you, then you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Garbage. There's nothing wrong with me taking the Word of God and saying, Hey, that's not true. (laughs) Hey, you can blaspheme. I believe you can blaspheme God by attributing things to Him that the Bible doesn't attribute to Him as well. So it goes both ways. Uh, But I don't believe we can do that today. I don't see anything in church history about that or people being excommunicated. I mean, we have to ask ourselves a question. Um, if if we can have a sin that can go unforgiven, does that mean it's possible for saved people to lose their salvation? Is that a sin that Jesus didn't die for? The answer is no. So you get into a lot of mess when you when you bring that. I, ju- I wanted to just use that as a, a point of doctrinal em- emphasis. I don't want you to be worried by that. But what we do see is blasphemy is when they s- tried to slander the name of God by attributing the works of God to the works of Satan. You see how that works? So we have to be very aware of this. Um, slandering God is very serious, but slandering people is very serious as well. And I'm sad to say that I've been to several church services where the preacher slandered other Christians from the pulpit. I don't know if you've been in that situation, but in and it, it wasn't certainly every preacher that I heard, and it wasn't all the time, but it's something that I heard uh, fairly consistently. Uh, and it, it wasn't even, listen, I believe you ought to call out false teachers. I have no problem doing that. I, have no, I don't even have problem calling names when the situation merits it. But to slander other Christian people from the pulpit because of preferences and secondary uh, disagreements, that's very problematic. And we need to be aware of these things. We we need to be very careful. I, I can't I can't stand it. I am grieved when I hear one sect of Christians slandering other another sect of Christians because of secondary and, and third tier issues. I just think I I think it grieves God. I really do. Um, very serious. Uh, sadly, I've been guilty of this uh, from time to time, and I've really Lord really convicted me of that. I've made a very concerted effort to limit. Uh, that kind of speech especially from the pulpit Um, and listen even when we condemn false teachers listen I've said it before Joel Osteen is a false teacher Uh, that man has never preached a, a message about repentance from sin in his life he wouldn't know what the gospel was if Jesus came down himself and shared it with him he wouldn't know Kenneth Copeland is a false teacher Uh, Creflo Dollar is a false teacher. Joyce Meyer, I could go down the list. These are false teachers with a false, damnable gospel. I have no qualms in saying that. But even in that situation, we have to be careful in the way we talk about them because I've heard some preachers talk about those folks as if they're almost glad they're on their way to hell. Wouldn't you be praying for those folks? Can you imagine being in their shoes at the judgment day? We need to pray God gives them repentance and they turn around and preach the true gospel. Wouldn't that be wonderful? So we need to be careful about that. Uh, Christ never used His speech to run down sinners. He saved that for the false teachers and Pharisees. You'll never find Christ running down sinners in Scripture. Uh, gossip is a form of slander. And slander can also can be done to a person's face or behind their back. In the form of gospel, uh, gossip—not gospel, gossip—but listen, gossip can be false, but gossip can also be a hurtful truth that doesn't need to be shared and passed around. Just because something's true doesn't give you permission to go share it with everybody, or it's a good thing. And a lot of times, men preachers are bad about this. Have you heard about so and so? Well, I tell him so you can put him on the prayer list, and then for an hour we slander the brother. Well, don't forget to pray for him, you know. Um, you think that you know, women are not the only people that gossip. I can tell you that. But please get this. We've got to get this. Uh, there is bad in everyone. Did you know that? There's bad in everyone. But there's also good things about people. You know, you could never run out of bad things to say about other people. Listen, I would never run out of bad things to say about myself. But there's also good in others, and grace looks for the good. Grace isn't blind to the bad, but grace talks about the good and prays for the bad. Man, we've got to get that. Grace looks for the good, but prays for the bad. Grace talks about the good. And Jesus gave us such a great example of this. When John the Baptist doubted him, and this is so good, and this just shows us the heart of our Savior. But John the Baptist had been thrown into prison. He was awaiting execution. He eventually was beheaded uh, for preaching against the adultery of Herod and making the wrong woman mad. That's another sermon for another day. But anyway, yeah, he left this world with his head on a platter being paraded in front of Herod's birthday party. And when he was in prison, you know, Jesus was going about his ministry and there were several times where Jesus was very near the prison where John was. He could have come by and at least encouraged him. Jesus could have, he had the power to release him. Jesus could have did whatever he wanted to do with God. But it never happened. And John, like a good Baptist, got discouraged. And the same man, we just studied this Sunday night, the same man, that said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. That same man from prison told two of his disciples, they said, Go ask him if he's really the one or should we look for another. Is he really the Messiah? What doubt in the heart of John the Baptist. And when those disciples came to Jesus, and they said, John wants to know if you're really the one or should we look for another? Jesus could have said, are you kidding me? I filled him with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. I trained him in the wilderness for over 30 years. I gave him the power to preach like no man has ever preached. He he baptized me. He saw the Spirit descending like a dove. He heard the Father speak from heaven, and he's doubting me? But what did he say? That was the context in which Jesus said, of men born of women, there has arisen none greater than John the Baptist. Can you imagine what that must have done in the heart of those disciples? Because they've got to be confused at this point. Hey, John's having. Can you imagine when those disciples left the prison having talked to John and went to go ask Jesus those questions? Can you imagine what that conversation was like? John's doubting. I I thought he was convinced that this was the Son of God. He, he even bore a record that this is the Son of God. And, and he baptized him, and, and he said he was the Messiah, and ha, I wonder if he's really the one. I mean, that's when, that's when Jesus he didn't slander John the Baptist. He came to his defense and defended his character in that moment. Well, we need to be more like that, don't we? There's so much bad that Jesus could have said in that moment, but he didn't. He said, "John the Baptist, he's the greatest man I ever lived. Men are born men." Born among women. Wow. What a, what a con- and even in that moment, aren't you glad that God is so patient with us? Aren't you glad that He's so loving toward us? I'm so glad that He's more patient with me than I am with others. we such a great example of this. We shouldn't use our words to slander and blaspheme others. Why? Listen, why would we want to do that? What does that say about the condition of our heart? We should also stop gossip in its tracks, by the way even if we're not the ones that start the gossip, we ought to finish it. We ought to stop the conversation right there. And if we don't have anything good to say, i tell you how to stop gossip. You, want, you just want to shut it down cold turkey. You just say, you know what? We just need to pray for that person. Don't even, don't even get their opinion about it. Just say, well, let's pray for Dear Lord, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And Lord, we pray for our crazy pastor right now. Lord, he needs help, but you can help him. and You know, that's what we need to do. I mean, that'll shut it down. It just changes the whole atmosphere. And um, we just need to be aware of blasphemy. Let's put away blasphemy by the grace of God. Let's put away the slander of others. But then number two, and I've got to hurry. Number two, filthy communication. He says this in the list here in verse 8. Well, I'm not going to spend long here because this is very self-explanatory. This is really deep getting the scuba gear out again, but filthy communication means filthy communication. Now, this can come in the form of cursing, using words we shouldn't use, or slang we shouldn't use. And by the way, that adds no value to what is being communicated. And yet, just because we're sinners and because we've got these things in our heart, they tend to rise to the surface. It's really an amazing phenomenon. I remember reading about the Welch Revival in the early 1900s. It was, that was a real revival, by the way. There was, uh, I believe, over 80,000 people that got saved. And somebody did some type of survey 10 years later and found that 80% of that 80,000 people was still in church and serving the Lord faithfully. And the the miners over there uh, in Wales and, and where that revival spread out, uh, you know, they used donkeys to haul the coal out. And they used to curse so much that when they got saved and they stopped cursing, They had to retrain the donkeys because they didn't understand their commands when it wasn't laced with curse words. (laughs) That's that's when you know, when you have to retrain the donkeys, you know you have had revival. (laughs) Filthy communication can come in the form of dirty jokes. But as Christians, why in the world will we rejoice over such perverse things? Proverbs 14 and verse 9, it says that fools make a mock at sin, but among the righteous there is favor. Fools make a mock at sin. Fools joke about sinful things. Um, Filthy communication can come in the form of inappropriate spe- uh, speech. I think specifically of men in front of women or two women. And I, I know that I, I probably sound old-fashioned. I'm only 38. But I remember a time in Alabama when I was growing up. I mean, you could be around men. I mean, they would cuss. It, it, they cuss so much it would make a sailor blush. I'm talking about there was no filter. They said whatever they wanted to say. They had absolutely no morality when it came to their mouth. And you have a woman walk in the room, and it's like a total transformation. Uh, They stopped cussing. They stopped telling dirty jokes. There was even a, a greater politeness in their tone because there was just a certain respect there that as a man, you just didn't talk a certain way in front of a lady. We just didn't do that. But now, you can forget that. All that chivalry and all that stuff, that's gone out the window. And I think it's just a further implication of just how depraved our society has become even in the last 20 years. God help us. Um, we just need to be aware of these things. Uh, just remember that it's, it filth is in our speech. It reveals filth within our hearts. And if someone finds themselves using this kind of speech, that, you know, listen, you should confess that to God and repent and then ask God to examine your heart as to the evil and wickedness there, so it can be exposed and removed. Filthy communication. A Christian has no business at all using filthy communication. But then thirdly, and I'm done, lying. Look at verse 9. It says, Lie not one to another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds. In John chapter 8, Jesus called Satan the father of lies. And I would say that we are never more like Satan than when we lie to others. Uh, the fall, listen to this. The fall of Adam and everything that came with it, the sickness, the death, the war, the violence, everything that we see in this fallen world, it all began with a lie, did it not? Satan showed up to Eve and said, you shall not surely die. Did God tell you that you would die in the day that you ate thereof? I, he, listen, He just knows that when you eat, you'll become gods like, uh, as God like He is. Every bit of the problems that we see in this world began with a lie. Proverbs 6, verses 16 through 19, it gives a list of seven things that God hates. God actually has a list in Proverbs of things that He hates that are an abomination to him. And two out of the seven have to do with lying. That's almost 30%. God hates a lying tongue, and he hates a false witness that speaketh lies. And this is, man, this is strong language here. It doesn't even say that God hates a false witness as in the bearing of false witness. He says, I hate the false, I hate the person that does that. Wow. He hates lying. Lying to someone is about the most hateful thing that you can do to them. And our country is in a mess right now because most people don't value the truth. I know that comes as a surprise to you. But most people in this country don't value truth. Most people would walk a hundred miles to have someone lie to them and tickle their ears, but they wouldn't walk across the street to hear somebody tell the truth. This is one of the signs of the last days. 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. What this means is that in the last days, which we're certainly living in, that people will love lies so much that they will heap to themselves false teachers that will tickle their ears. In other words, they can't get enough of the lies. They can't even endure the truth, but they can't get enough of the lies you like listening to lies, you like telling them too. On the other hand, the people of God should, listen, we should value the truth. That's what makes us different in this lost and dying world. We're we're supposed to be light in darkness. We're supposed to be truth amongst the lies. The people of God, listen, are indwelt by the Spirit of truth. John 14 and verse 17. We have the truth of the Word of God, the Word of truth. Jesus said in John 17, 17, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The truth is what makes us free. Jesus said that in John 8 and verse 32. We serve a God of truth who cannot even lie. Titus chapter 1 and verse 2 says that God cannot even lie. It's not within His nature. And if we're dwelt by Him and we're abiding in Him, it ought not be in our nature either. We serve a God of truth. Aren't, aren't you glad that we serve a God of truth? He's not a, God is not a liar. That's why He commands us not to lie. It's not just He's wagging His fingers and saying, don't you lie. He's saying, I'm not a liar, and you're supposed to be a reflection of my character. He cannot even lie. On the other hand, Satan is the father of lies. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. We look around our world today, it's so hard to find anybody that will keep their word. But I'm glad I serve a God that does and will. So how do we become people of truth who use our words to bless and not to curse, to give life instead of death? Well, we've got to seek the Lord in order to put off the old man and put on the new. Look again at verse 9 and we're coming in for a landing. It said, lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds. That's the old nature. Now we still deal with this nature and we have it, but because we're indwelt by the new man, we don't have to be a slave to it. Verse 10, and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, (coughs) after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and end all. You see, he's doing away with these divisions here. He's bringing it back to this theme of unity within the body of Christ. That cannot happen without truth. Genuine relationships, deep, intimate, personal relationships cannot exist outside of honesty and truth and trust. Cannot happen. You might can have a superficial relationship that ignores those things, but you'll never have an intimate personal relationship outside of truth. Our words have great power. They can build up or tear down. They can wound. They can heal. And they can spread lies or they can spread truth. I'm going to close by quoting a short paragraph that was taken from an article from Today in the Word on June 15th of 1992. I quote, it says, Can it be that the average person spends one-fifth of of his or her life talking? One-fifth. That's what the statistics say. If all of our words were put into print, the result would be this. A single day's words would fill a 50-page book, while in a year's time, the average person's words would fill 132 books of 200 pages each. In a 70-year lifespan, the average person could fill up 9,240 books, 200 pages each with their words. Among all those words, there are bound to be some spoken in anger, carelessness, or haste. End quote. So my challenge to you as we close is this. That's an amazing thought. That if a person lives to be 70 years, the average person would have said enough words to fill up 9,240 books, 200 pages each. That's an entire library, folks. So my question is this. When you die, if we had the ability to walk into that library of the words of your life and just at random just start grabbing books off the shelf and opening up, what will we see on an average day? Would it be full of bitterness, anger, complaining, cursing? Or would it be words of praise to God? Would it be words of sharing the gospel with your neighbor? Would it be words of encouragement to those that are struggling and discouraging? Would it be words of prayer to God on behalf of others? This is serious stuff. And I'm so thankful... That as a a saved person my sins are under the blood of Jesus Christ never to be brought up again. But you do realize that for the lost that stand before Christ at the great white throne judgment, the Bible says they're going to answer for every idle word. God does have that library. He does have that record. And I thank God that as a Christian I'll never deal with it on a legal level of punishment. But man, I sure want my words to leave a lasting impact for Christ and for the good and not to tear down others. Because the power of life and death is in the tongue. Proverbs 25 and verse 11 says, A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. As we close, I'll read this, I'm done. Look at just one page over at Colossians 4 and verse 6. Colossians 4 and verse 6 Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer every man. This is something that's going to take time. It's something that's going to take effort. It's going to take prayer and the grace of God because the negative just comes so naturally. It just flows so freely and we have to say, well, hold on now, I don't need to talk like, Lord, help me with this. God, what is this revealing in my heart? We need to confess to God where we fall short and ask His help to, to overcome not only our speech, but the problems in our heart that would merit that kind of speech. Because our speech is the aroma of our heart. And you'll never live the resurrected life if you don't get this under control.